Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. Pre-existing condition has become a political buzzword today. But the truth is that chronic disease, such as diabetes, obesity, and hypertension, is the number one driver of healthcare consumption and cost in America today. It's a classic 80-20 dilemma, where the majority of cost is driven disproportionately by a small segment of patients. So how do we tackle this exploding health and economic crisis? In today's episode, we'll hear from Terry Wilcox, the executive director of Patients Rising, a leading advocacy group for those living with chronic pre-existing conditions. She'll describe how simply mandating insurance coverage of these conditions has backfired for many who now find themselves functionally uninsured. And she'll reveal some potential solutions on the horizon. Your average Joe who happens to be self-employed, who gets stuck with an ACA plan, I always say those are the people that I feel the most sorry for because they're stuck with these really horrible plans that cover nothing, do nothing, and provide nothing, and they spend a fortune on it. That is where the ACA fails. Well, hi, folks. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. I am your celebrity guest host, Adam Habig, sitting in once again for Christopher Habig. And today I have the privilege and pleasure uh, to interview Terry Wilcox. Uh, Terry is the co-founder and executive director of Patients Rising. Terry, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about Patients Rising. Um, Tell us about how you kind of came into that and and what your focus is today. Well, Patients Rising, we were formed in 2015. My husband and I co-founded the organization. It's a national organization based in Washington, D.C., We have a C3, which is Patients Rising, and we have a C4, which is Patients Rising Now. On the C3 side, we focus on support, education, resources, and research for patients living with chronic and life-threatening illnesses that specifically focus on access and affordability issues. On the C4 side, we focus on policy and advocacy that deal with access and affordability for patients in living with chronic and life-threatening illnesses. So we sort of parlay the support and education over into our advocacy work on the other side. Certainly an area of immense need. Can you tell us what brought you to that vocation? Well, I had worked in advocacy for cancer advocacy for for several years um, for another organization. And I was sort of the head of patient content and development. And I had come into contact with a lot of patients. I spent a lot of time with patient stories and learning about the research and, and interviewing doctors. And it was just kind of a world that I was already familiar with. And we started to do more policy and advocacy work. My husband and I made the decision to move to D.C. in 2015. We were in California. We wanted kind of a new new uh, direction for, for where we were headed. And we just moved all the way across the country. And we founded Patients Rising because we had both been doing this kind of access and affordability policy work. My husband has a policy background. He no longer works with Patients Rising. He's, um, he works uh, in the federal government at the moment. And I work. One of the things that we did find out when you find when you uh, when you are the founders of a nonprofit, it should not be the sole source of income for you and 
Idea. So that was that was we quickly uh, we quickly uh, realized that oh this isn't going to be how we want to do this and so he is on the board the board and he's still very much involved with what we're doing and is very much a part of what we're doing but he just um, has a different job at the moment so anyway we uh, were working with a lot of patients we were doing policy and advocacy around access and we wanted to keep doing it and so we founded the organization and made some connections and found some really key policy issues that we focused on right, right away out of the gate. And access and affordability was something that we thought there was sort of a, a missing element for patients out there. There are a lot of disease-specific organizations and a lot of fantastic national disease-specific organizations that do policy and advocacy that are actually a lot more well-funded than patients rising. There there are the organizations that we all know, uh, American Cancer Society, uh, you know, Arthritis Foundation, big, big, big organizations. But one of the things that when you get very disease specific, it's hard to do is you is sometimes you sort of don't have the, the bandwidth to like look at the big picture because you're just looking at it through the goggles of the disease that you're focused on, whether it's diabetes or arthritis or cancer or whatever. And so we found a real sort of place for things that we could cover that that were across disease states. And so we work with a lot of patient advocates all over the country that are actually, you know, have a, a disease specific organization that they work with constantly and or, or that they are also engaged with. But then they also engage with us on a lot of the policy and advocacy big picture issues that we sort of dive into as an organization. Fascinating. And I, I, I know from personal experience um, that Physicians will often say rarely does a patient walk in and that patient, as they say, has diabetic written across their forehead or hypertensive. Mm -hmm. These so-called comorbidities often exist in bunches. And so your point, well taken, that perhaps a single uh, condition advocacy perspective is not necessarily realistic given that so many of these conditions have crossover and spillover effects and interact with one another. Uh, and I think it's, it's very, very, you know, spot on in terms of your focus because uh, you mentioned affordability. And if we look at macro level systemic affordability, disproportionate costs driven by these chronic conditions that often exist in bunches. In uh, uh, if you wanted to to get your most bang for your buck in terms of of uh, addressing any particular part of healthcare, I'd say you you should be you'd be well advised to focus on on those comorbidities. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, chronic illness is definitely what drives healthcare costs in this country. We all know that roughly 90% of prescriptions written in this country are generic, right? So it's not, you know, you want to talk about the cost of medicines, the cost of hospital bills, the cost of all of that. I mean, obviously a big chunk of that is driven, is driven by the elderly and Medicare people in their last stages of life. That's where we spend most of our money, but it's all the chronic illness piece. You know, it's driven by a small percentage of people, but a large percentage of costs and more and more of that cost is being put back onto those patients. Right. You know, whether it's through their premiums raising or through these ridiculous and the ACA plans, I mean, these ridiculous deductibles that people just can't oftentimes begin to meet if they don't have some sort of public assistance with helping to cover that. If they're just your average Joe who happens to be self-employed, who gets stuck with an ACA plan, I always say those are the people that I feel the most sorry for 
because they're stuck with these really horrible plans that cover nothing, do nothing, and provide nothing, and they spend a fortune on it. That is where the ACA failed. If you are one of the lucky people, not I don't know what it's called lucky, but if you're one of the people that gets a lot of your premium and deductible covered because of where you are in the financial spectrum of things, well, then you may not notice this. But if you're just a working class Joe who can no longer go out and shop for a plan, then these ACA plans are, are, and we have many, many patients who advocate with us around this, are, are, are are not that great. And that's where something really needs to be done. So fabulous insight, Terry. One uh, recurring theme on this show is around the notion that health coverage or health insurance is not synonymous with health care. Period. End of story. It's just not. And to your point, we, we sadly label that situation um, functionally uninsured because you might have an insurance card whether it's ACA or whatnot, and if you can't afford the deductible, if you can't afford the copay, what good is it? Uh, but it, when it, as it relates to to your work with patients rising, I know one one notion is that uh, given what you see and and that the um, you know the system, if we call it that, is is struggling to care for the folks that are chronically ill or have multiple chronic. Uh, comorbidities. What are some of the the hot button advocacy issues that you're grappling with today? Well, one of the biggest that we're grappling with is something called copay accumulators. And this is overwhelmingly affecting patients living with chronic conditions who are on generally name brand medicines that are expensive. They're generally biologics or something like that, a newer medicine, a name brand medicine that does not have a generic equivalent. And they receive copay assistance to help support that because a lot of these people are stuck, like I said, in these high deductible plans. And so we can talk about the supply chain of PBMs and, and, um, and pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, and how crazy that is. But one of the things that, that we focus on is, okay, yeah, that is nuts. And, and, you know, we could spend a whole economic hour on talking about how that works or doesn't work. And I'm not an economist, so I don't want to do that. But what I will say is that a lot of the costs are falling back on the patients. And in so doing that, they're, they're paying. I'll just use an example of this, which I think is the easiest way to explain it. We have a patient in Texas. Um, she has MS. She's on a high-cost medicine. She's generally healthy, except for the fact that she has MS. She's self-employed. She has a marketplace ACA plan. It costs $750 a month for just her, for a premium. The deductible is $7,900 or $81, but whatever. It's expensive. So the pharmaceutical company has provided her with a copay card, a coinsurance card to help cover the cost of her, her deductible so that she can afford the medicine. Well, now insurance plans have decided, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to count that copay assistance towards your deductible. We're going to count that copay assistance towards us. We're going to put it in our pocket and we're going to take it. And you're not getting it. And so, therefore, your deductible is never going to go down. And basically, then she couldn't afford the medicine, right? Because it was going to be an astronomical amount of money per month for her to get it up front. 
So what happened was she ended up talking to the pharmaceutical company and they do an override every month and give her free medicine. Now she knows she's never going to meet her deductible. So she doesn't even use her insurance to pay for her doctor visit. She negotiates cash prices with them because it's cheaper than what she would have to pay her deductible. So she's like, why should I pay down this deductible? I'm never going to pay it down anyway. What's your cash price? So she pays $750 a month for catastrophic coverage. She does not use, she gets free drug and pays cash to her doctors. I think that's a, a much more common story than, um, than we probably think it is. And it's a, you know, there, there's one example because she, this particular individual has found she can purchase more value uh, on her own by going direct and, and paying cash for her, uh, her care than she can by working through the established insurance-based system. And I, look, there's, a, there's a, uh, another reason that the emerging alternatives out there of which direct care and direct primary care is, is one example, how patients realize this. They vote with their feet when, you know, in, in this situation, it sounds like she was compelled to look elsewhere, but um, so many more individuals make that uh, decision on their own to take their dollars, but with their feet. And that's why they're, they're moving in mass towards these alternative outlets of care because they do offer a better value than they could get other, get other places. Fascinating story though. And I, I wonder if, if this is a good segue into really, if, if we were going to attack the heart of the problem, Terry, and, and you have again, unique perspective into what drives some of this, but if I could characterize it very broadly, we have a healthcare costs in this country are driven disproportionately by chronic conditions, number one. So in any attempt to, to constrain costs, we have to do a better job limiting the, the impact of chronic conditions. So ideally, medically, we can limit their proliferation. Uh, I know many chronic conditions are such that there really isn't a cure. They just need to be managed effectively. I know there have been tremendous results uh, in terms of, of both quality of life, keeping people alive, keeping people mobile, avoiding worst case scenarios, amputations, things of that nature. Tremendous benefits to, to managing chronic illness well, as well as cost savings. I mean, when you don't have those uncontrolled, unmanaged conditions uh, pouring into the healthcare system, Certainly, your costs go down. Um, I, I don't know. There are some in, in the healthcare system that might uh, see that as a bad thing. Fewer procedures, fewer, fewer operations. I won't speculate on that. But all in all, I think we can, we can agree that that is a desired outcome. When we, we link this back to kind of our, our focus on, um, in Healthcare Americana and, and even at Freedom HealthWorks, the notion that, that a, a more free market healthcare system provides better options and better value for individuals. I like to relate that to the, the folks with chronic illness because these are a lot of the people that are, are they've, be, they've become the political footballs in this debate. And it goes by many names, you know, pre-existing conditions, things of that nature. But what we're talking about are people that have conditions when they, 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 they require more intense management. And when they're not managed well, they can result in, in very expensive, very catastrophic outcomes adverse events. Uh, how do you see things like direct primary care and the ability for patients like the one you mentioned in Texas to go different directions to seek the more perhaps intensive care that she needs 
versus someone who, who is not chronically ill. How do you see that, uh, I guess, the interplay between where you focus with patients rising on those advocacy issues and the emergence of these types of options like direct primary care for those patients, those consumers? I think direct primary care is a fantastic option for the right patients. And I think everybody should be educated on it and kind of understand how it works. One of the things that, one of the uphill battles that I think we have in this country is that we're somewhat lazy. We're getting less so because they're putting, as they put more and more costs on the patients, we get less lazy because we're like, whoa, where's all this coming from, right? All of a sudden, all these expenses that you didn't have before, you used to walk up to a pharmacy counter and pay $30 or $20 copay or whatever for, to pick up your medicine. Now it's like, you know, these astronomical costs, people are paying attention, so people are getting smarter. We actually have chronic disease patients, I'm a migraine patient, who went out in search of an HSA plan where she could get her own direct primary care and other things because she hated her plan. She was like, we had this great plan that covered nothing I needed for my migraine. Not my medicine, nothing. Covered nothing. So we're going to pay a little bit less per month and we're going to spend some of our own money doing some of these other unique things and putting together our own plan that works for our family in my condition. And I think that's what people need to look at. I mean, even myself, my husband, with some of the issues that we have getting in just to see the doctors that we want to see, we're looking at direct primary care in our area in Northern Virginia. And one of the things that for one of the first places that we researched and wanted to try has a waiting list. So people are using it. Right. Right. I mean, we can't even get into a direct primary care doctor right now because they're, they're, they're booked up because they'll only take some, the patient number of patients that they can handle, which is good. Sure. But well, no, and- I think that this is, I think all of this, these unique ways of putting together in our system, if we're going to live in a gig economy, as they like to call it, right? The millennials and their gig economy, then we've got to have sort of a gig healthcare system that you can call together sort of your own plan, your own needs. Certainly. Because you can't just put these sort of one size fits all, high deductible, you pay for everything, we pay for nothing, or very little kind of plans together. Right. No, I wonder, I, as you were speaking, I'm thinking in a previous life, I had more uh, experience in the chronic care space uh, from the software side, actually, but the, I'm, I'm envisioning a future where um, someone, and, and I've certainly made this recommendation myself to family members who are um, managing their own chronic conditions. Imagine a, a chronically ill patient or someone with, with comorbidities having their own, first of all, direct primary care physician, uh, someone who gets to know them really well, someone they can have contact with as much as necessary. And I know that a lot of times that's at least quarterly. Uh, so every three months, you're going to be in the office getting um, you know, your labs, your vitals, just really passing the eyeball test, which for many people is, is um, if the physician knows them well, can mean a lot. But imagine that type of access to a primary care physician, telehealth when necessary, but also a primary care physician who can help direct that individual when they do need something outside the primary care setting. So it's not someone who just says, I'm going to ship you off to the cardiologist or the endocrinologist. This is someone who said, I'm going to get you the right fit in terms of, of your care, but to make sure you're not getting things you don't need 
duplicative, wasteful otherwise. Uh, but I'm going to kind of shepherd you through the system because we all at some point need something outside of those four walls of your primary care doctor's office. It's just that people with chronic conditions tend to need more of that. And that goes for uh, physician or for, for pharmaceuticals as well. What if that same physician, that same primary care doc could say, hey, by the way, we're going to dispense generics in office. They're going to be a tenth of the cost that you'll pay down at the CVS. You don't have to monkey around with your insurance card, your deductibles. You don't have to play these games any longer. Um, does that sound like something viable? I mean, you leave insurance there, Terry, for uh, when things, if things do go terribly wrong and you do need to be hospitalized, and even then sometimes a good primary care doctor, a good direct primary care doctor can help direct your care so that you don't um, suffer uh, some sort of catastrophic economic loss at the same time. But does that sound like a recipe for tackling this, uh, really this scourge of chronic illness in our country? Well, absolutely. And I also think some of the doctors, the specialists for patients like diabetes and for, you know, endocrinologists and rheumatologists, where they have a lot of patients, are looking more at some of these direct primary care models for their patients. You're going to see it, I think, happening more and more as they move the pie around. Because how the pie is always shifting with insurance and PBMs, is they're always keeping more of it and giving less of it to doctors and forcing patients to pay more. That's fascinating. Terry, let's pause there. A brief word from our sponsors and we'll be right back and let's hear more about that and what you really see coming down the pike uh, in the next decade. Stay tuned, folks. More Healthcare Americana after the break. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. We are joined by Terry Wilcox with Patients Rising. Terry, in our final segment today, love to just hear your thoughts on where you see things going. You have this unique perspective focused on the, the segment of our patient population that drives the, the most cost and really gets a lot of attention, that of the, the chronically ill patients. But where do you see things going in the next 10 years? Where would, you, where would you like to see things going? I know you're active in advocacy, but if you could paint a picture um, of the next several years, next decade, I think our listeners would love to hear that. Well, my vision of a perfect world for healthcare would be a world, obviously, in keeping with our mission as, as, as our, with our, within our two organizations, where all healthcare is accessible and affordable. I mean, obviously. We're not there today. We're not even close to their day. <laughs> We're close to there for some people. And oftentimes I say they're the lucky people like actually myself who have a pretty good health insurance plan and I go to the doctor and I do my checkups and I do my things and most everything's covered. I don't have a lot of other out-of-pocket expenses, but other people do. And other people are being put more and more in stuck with this burden, even seniors, even seniors. Because when you look at all the financial support that others can get with, with pharmaceuticals and things, seniors can't get those things. There's no copay assistance allowed in Medicare Part D. 
So seniors are stuck this donut hole and all this. And Medicare Part D, for the most part, has been a success. But for those few seniors, for those num- small number of seniors that have large pharmaceutical expenses and are stuck in Medicare Part D, you know, it is, it's, it's harrowing. It's, you know, it's crazy because they get to a point where they're always paying a percentage, no matter what, they never lose that. There's no out-of-pocket cap, which is a huge thing for us in Part D is when are we going to get an out-of-pocket cap for these poor seniors? Do you see, because you have insight on the policy side, do you see Medicare in particular? uh, Are there any efforts to open things up a bit where where seniors and and Medicare beneficiaries have a little more choice? And, And some of the things we talked about, what if they... They, they looked around and thought that perhaps a direct primary care physician is their best alternative given their unique needs, their more intense uh, care that they, they demand. Do you see a situation like that or, or like the one you mentioned where perhaps they could get some, some copay assistance? Are there any efforts within Medicare at the policy level to really innovate like that? I think there, I mean, I think there are. I, Medicare is, I know there's a lot of advocacy in place to help seniors in support of Medicare Part D policy gaps, supporting a lot of this, which I also see in the future, more of in the future, the telehealth that's just kind of taken off during COVID. What's going to save us? And I've always thought, and and in this day and age, I think this is an easy call. I don't think I have a a magic ball. It's going to be technology. And it's going to be utilizing, utilizing that technology and the data we can derive from that technology to its maximum. We're still stuck in a very antiquated secret contracts. Nobody knows what anybody's paying for anything. I mean, I've actually had doctors say to me, I'll say, how much does this cost? And they'll say, it depends on who's paying for it. Well, that's not an answer. That's not an answer. You should know how much it costs. It shouldn't depend on who's paying for it. Couldn't agree more. It should have a price. It should yes. have a price. It should be transparent. That's, that's a dumb answer. And I don't, I'm not, you know, it's, the doctor's just right. That's what the doctor's dealing with and dealing with all these plans, right? He has to build this billing code with this amount for this plan. It's probably insane. Doesn't make any sense to him either or her. Doesn't make sense to them either. But I see a future of a more streamlined where patients can sort of pick and choose what works for them. I know there's a whole socialized medicine thing. And I mean, we may end up there. I don't have any idea. I have no magic ball for that. I, I, don't, I don't think people will think that's the panacea that they want to think it is, especially if they have a chronic illness or they need to see the doctor a lot. I always find that the people who tout that the most aren't really that sick. That is profound. Um, you know, honestly, to jump in, because that, in, in, I think a lot of times people hold up your you know, your straw man patient, the one you mentioned earlier in the show and say, well, this is the patient that can't get uh, enough care. It's somebody who's a heavy user of the system. And so this is exactly who uh, would be helped or would be, would benefit from this notion of more centralized, socialized medicine, more bureaucratic control. And you're saying just the opposite. It's those folks who would suffer under a system where there are not alternatives allowed, where everyone is shoehorned into a one size fits all system. Yeah, I just think you're going to end up with more of the, you know, harrowing stories that you can hear from places like Canada and other parts of the world where, yeah, their system works when you're healthy. And when you really need to get a colonoscopy, and, you, and, and because you have something that some doctor saw somewhere and you have to wait three weeks, and then by the time you get it, get it done, it's, you know, you're stage four. 
I think those patients would question slightly that ability. I mean, we have, it is not that hard to get into, get a test for anything in the United States. We have plenty of machinery. <laughs> we have lots of options. Sure. It just, sometimes you need um, that, that navigator and that that's where a great primary care doc can, especially direct primary care doc can fulfill that role. Terry, I know we're running out of time here. Um, again, I'm, I've been joined today by Terry Wilcox, the co-founder and executive director of Patients Rising. How can folks uh, get involved with Patients Rising, Terry? Um, you can visit patientsrising.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Patients Rising. We also have the Patients Rising podcast, which comes out every Friday, where we talk a lot about these policy issues with my co-host, Bob Goldberg. And um, yeah, you can visit us there at Patients Rising at Facebook. We have a big community there. So just look us up, Patients Rising. Wonderful. Well, thanks for joining us today on Healthcare Americana. Thank you folks for listening. Terry, we may do this another time. Great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry, and we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.